We are a very complex people and so complex that we sometimes don't even understand ourselves. Um, just in regards to asking the question, uh, what heals you? I mean, if you're hurting, what comforts you? If you feel like you're uh, in bondage, is there something out there that can set you free? Um, if that something is out there, what do you use um, to set you free? What do you use to be liberated? Even another question, what drives you? What motivates you? What pushes you? What um, makes you want to get up in the morning and go hard if you go hard? Or what makes you wake up in the morning and not really want to go if you don't really want to go? Ask the question, is there one word that can drive all of that? In other words, is there one word that can heal you, one word that can comfort you, one word that can free you, uh, one word that is kind of the central dynamic of your life that kind of carries the all of you? Um, there is a word, and that word is worship. For the next six weeks, we're going to talk about the concept um, of worship and the power that worship carries, the control that worship carries, the freedom that worship carries. For the next six weeks, we want to make an argument that worship is the one thing that drives every person. So then you just ask the question, well, I wonder what it is that I am worshiping. Number one in our notes, we've been created too big to be satisfied with normal. We need more. If I'd ask uh, a question of how much money do you need until you are happy? Do um, you know what the answer is? Just a little bit more than I have. So you can have $50,000 a year, and it's just a little bit more, and I'll be happy. Or you can have $10 million a year. How much money do you need to be happy? Just a little bit more than $10 million. And I think that that would bring me over the edge to make me happy. How much love can I receive from my mate to make my marriage really good? Just a little bit more than you have. You see, we have this little hunger in ourselves that wants a little bit more, wants a little bit bigger, wants a little bit larger, wants to grab a hold of something that is, this is the item that makes me happy. So what we do is we often put it in our mind and meditate over that one item, that this is the item that will give it to me. And as we meditate on the item, maybe a position in our job, if I could have this job, then security will finally take place. Or if I had this much money, then I could finally relax. Or if um, my kids would just behave this way, everything would just be work out perfect. I mean, we have all these things in our, our mind that we meditate on, meditate on, meditate on. And as we meditate on them, we kind of say, this is the ultimate. And if this thing takes place, I will finally have arrived. We live in a world where we are starving for a bigger one, a better one, a more magnificent one, and we always have that on our mind, trying to grab a hold of it. Do we believe that we live in a world always wanting a bigger one? Even from the larger plane, um, if you look at the movie theater, what took place last week, a couple weeks ago, Avengers came out. How many watched the Avengers? You don't have to raise your hand. But... $258 million came in in regards to Avengers in just in two days in the weekend of that Avenger movie that comes that came out. It beat the box office. What was number two? Star Wars, $248 million came in during that weekend. It beat the box office. Now, what is um, Avengers about? What is Star Wars about? 
well, there's nothing normal about it, we'll put it that way. There's no normal powers, there's no normal people, there's no normal planets, there's no normal actions, there's no normal behaviors, there's an abnormal strength. There's so much that is just like, wow, it's huge. Why are we buying into that? The reason why we're buying into it and making sure that we're showing up to the movies to see it is because we are starving for something large, something that's abnormal, something that is so big that if I had it, that would be the ultimate. Number two, we need more because we have been created to worship something extraordinary. Nothing will uh, satisfy you until you hold on um, to the ultimate, but then you have to ask the question, what is the ultimate? And what have you made the ultimate? In our minds, we can even think, this is my ultimate thing that is going to make me happy. This is the ultimate thing that's going to give me peace. This is the ultimate thing that is going to give me pleasure. And you can write it down and you can know what it is. But will it do it would almost be the question. Or are you starving and striving for the extreme ultimate? And if there is an extreme ultimate that is out there, extreme extraordinary that is out there, what is it? Romans 12, 1 through 12, uh, 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, and then we get the word, of worship. What does this verse say? Present yourself to something. Is it something small or is it something big? Present yourself to what? Says God in this passage. Live for something. How big? Something small? No, something huge. Live for God. Sacrifice to. These are the three things it's talking about. A motive to do. Now, in our lives, I catch myself doing it often. I think we can all admit that we catch ourselves um, doing it often, but we often present ourselves, live for, or sacrifice to often money, often job, often family, often sex, often the drink, often fame, often image. we presenting ourselves to, and whatever we present ourselves to, we are a slave to. We talk about a free world. We have freedom of speech. We should be able to do what we want. We should not be able to be told what to do. What's interesting about the world that we live in is that nobody's free. We are slaves to whatever we present ourselves to. Slaves because it takes our emotion. Slaves because it takes our will. Slaves because it takes our mind. So the question we can ask, am I presenting myself to something that is extraordinary or something that is small? This passage says, take yourself, present yourself to God. Spurgeon said, I worship a God I never expect to comprehend. If I could grasp him in the hollow of my hand, I could not call him my God. And if I can understand his dealings so that I could read them as a child reads a spelling book, I could not worship him. But because he is so infinitely great, I find truth here, truth there, truth uniform. Charles Spurgeon is talking about, I worship a God that I can't comprehend, and I love every bit of it. How many of us have denied God, or people have denied God? It's like, I can't comprehend, I can't see him, and because he refuses to come to my level and allows me to put him in the box, I will then deny him. 
probably the most beautiful thing about God is that you cannot grasp him with the human mind, but yet you can open the Bible and see his amazing love for us. You can open up the book of nature in the sense of walking through this world and saying, you are an extremely magnificent God. And then you get a passage like Romans that says, present yourself to this extremely magnificent God. Almost even a sense of walking through nature and looking around and observing things. We often think, well, you know, I'm not a nature freak, but that's God's book. Nature is God's book. To do what? To display his power. The Bible is God's book to display his love. So when we see nature, and then we open up the Bible, we can say, see nature, it's like, God, you are absolutely amazing. You open up the Bible and say, God, you absolutely love me. But do we worship a God that is beyond our mind? When we look at uh, the world, we think, yeah, he's, he's absolutely beyond my mind. But when you look at the universe, does he go even a little bit further beyond your mind? just want to look at uh, um, some, some uh, statistics in regards to how huge this universe is and how expanse that is out there that our Creator created. If you look at uh, the stars, this is just some information, the closest star is 4.37 light years away. That's 25 trillion miles. Um, that's a little bit beyond our mind, something that we cannot um, even comprehend. Uh, but that doesn't start there. That's just the closest star. You look into the universe, the edge of the galaxy is 100,000 light years away, which would be 2,500,000,000 trillion miles. So you hear the words, present yourself to this creator that created all of it, 2,500,000,000 trillion miles. But that's just what? That's just the edge of the galaxy. There's a next galaxy, so if we can get to galaxy number two, it goes up to 179,000 light years away, which is roughly, I'm sorry, I'm just, you know, rounding it up now, not like it makes a difference, but it would be 5 million trillion miles away. So here we see the book of nature, and we see how large it is, and then we look at the Bible, and we hear the words, present yourself to God. Present yourself to the Creator of this person. It doesn't stop there. In other words, we think that is large, but there is an estimated 100 billion galaxies even beyond that. So we went to galaxy number two. There's 100 billion beyond that, and the only reason why we know there's 100 billion is because we don't have a microscope that can search for more. And we think we can get one big enough where we can figure out it can be possibly 200 billion. But will it stop at 200 billion? So here we have something that's extraordinary. But the most amazing piece about extraordinary is opening up the Bible and say, extraordinary, the creator of the world has done what? Has died for you, has rose for you, and is committed to love you. Therefore, present yourself to me in a sense of worship. But here in this life, what do we do? often present ourselves to something that is not extraordinary, present ourselves to something that is much more small. C.S. Lewis makes comment of it. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies and slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too 
easily pleased. We are created with something extraordinary to worship something extraordinary, to give ourselves to something that is extraordinary. But C.S. Lewis's argument is we are so far easily pleased that we're not even after extraordinary. We're working with the small things down here on earth. John Piper makes mention the enemy of worship is not that our desire for pleasure is too strong, but our desire for pleasure is too weak. We settle for a home, a family, a few friends, a job, a television, a microwave oven, an occasional night out, a yearly vacation, and perhaps a new personal computer. We have accustomed ourselves to such meager, short-lived pleasures that our capacity for joy has shriveled. And so our worship then has shriveled away as well. So if we look at the concept of worship, we can ask the question, who am I giving myself to? Who am I devoting myself to. Number three, worship is ascribing ultimate value to something or someone. This is the definition of worship. Ascribe. What does ascribe mean? It is to consider as belonging to. I'm going to consider belonging to this. What we do in life is we consider belonging to, in fact, we don't even have to make the decision. We automatically start belonging to things and we start ascribing to things. And the way that we start ascribing to things is we start asking questions and then we start answering them ourselves. One question we ask is, what will make me happy? And the thing that will make me happy, I will ascribe to. I will give myself away for. What do you have that makes you feel worth something? Those things in your life think, I am going to start ascribing myself to. I will give myself automatically away to that. What do I have that gives me purpose? What do I have that I could not live without? Now, when I look at this list, I start thinking about um, the list and think, you know, there's a lot of things that I have completely ascribed my life to. And the reason why I believe I completely ascribe my life to is because if I lost it, it might hurt so deep to the core that it would mess me up. Maybe my family. My family is really important to me, and therefore, what have I done? I've ascribed my emotions to them, my will to them, my excitement for them. I love my family, and if I lost my family, what would it do to me? Would it ruin me? Is it the ultimate, my family, the ultimate thing that I've ascribed to? If it is, and I lose them, is there anything to live for outside? You see what God is doing is God saying, you can take something that is really good, but if you make it an ultimate thing where it controls every aspect of your life, it is no longer good because you have submitted worship to it. And if you have submitted worship to it and then lose it, then you have nothing. God says, I want you to ascribe to me because the foundation of everything you have, everything you desire, everything that you want is in me. All the way through Psalms, we see these passages Go to the Lord. Psalms 29, 1 through 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O Son of the Mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory in his strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Ascribe to the Lord in holy array. Psalms 96, 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him. All the earth, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Psalms 138, 
I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. What's this psalmist saying? This psalmist is saying that I stand in front of a whole things that I call myself gods, that, or that I call gods, that I've kind of submitted to, that I've worshipped, that I think that I can't live without if I lose them. This psalmist is saying, God, all those things that I've ascribed myself to, I want to make sure that you stand on top. I want to make sure that I ascribe to you as my ultimate thing that, um, that I have in my life. When you ascribe to God as your ultimate thing, um, the apostles kind of got a little crazy with their words. What I mean by crazy with their words, they started saying things like, you can take my life, but if you don't take God away from me, if you don't take my soul, then I'll be all right. What is that? That's ascribing so far to God to say, God, you are my it, you are my all, you are the ultimate that I worship. I have all of these things, but you are the ultimate. And therefore, since you are the ultimate, if I lose the whole world, but don't lose you, I could still be all right. Some of these apostles also said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Ascribing to God almost took him off this planet about two inches. Said, my mind is going to be in this other planet. And ascribing to God brought them to make those statements. Ascribing to God says, I rejoice in my tribulations. I rejoice in my persecutions. I rejoice in my trials. Now when we look at this concept, we think, wow, how can we get to it? How can we ever accomplish it? How can we ever even walk to something that is so large? The concept is, are you a worshiper? Do you come to worship? Do we ascribe specifically to God on a daily basis? Do we describe to ascribe ourselves to God on an hourly basis? Number four, worship comes from the old English word worth shape, to be shaped by the worth of something. What you give yourself, uh, what you give yourself to shapes you. It will shape your mind. It will shape your attention. It will shape your time. It will shape your money. It will shape your devotion. And the Bible refers to the one word, worship. So that is the one word that is described in the Bible that will shape every single aspect of your life. We know this because we look at money and we think, uh, well, does money shape you at all? Um, money definitely shapes you. We depend on it. We trust on it. We need it, and it is very essential in our life. But if we worship it as the ultimate, what does it do then? It then shapes us for the negative, in a sense that our emotions are controlled by it. Our anger comes out as a result of losing it. Our frustration comes out as a result of it not being there. Worship carries the power to shape you, carries the power to rule you. We have to ask, what is shaping us? Psalms 115, 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them Almost they will own. So what's the one principle that comes throughout the Bible, almost through every single page? Treat me as God. Worship me as God. Because I want to be the one that shapes you, not the items of this world. 
I want to be the one that builds you, not the items of this world. I want to be the one that rules you, not the items of this world. We are shaping our, being shaped by different things, and they are ruling us, they are controlling us. Ask the question, are we being shaped by God? A statement of worship of somebody being shaped by God is just a simple parable, about two, um, two lines in the book of Matthew, chapter 16. When a man found a treasure in the field, and after he found the treasure in the field, what did he do? He sold absolutely everything. And when he sold absolutely everything, he went and he bought the field because he found something that completely shaped him. Something that was so extraordinary. He says, this is going to be my Lord. This is going to be my God. Nothing else will rule me. Nothing else will own me. Therefore, this is my ultimate devotion. Number five, when you ascribe ultimate value to something, it shapes your emotions, will, and mind. As we work through this series, you'll see that we'll talk a lot about worship. We'll talk a lot about community. Or not worship. We'll talk about, yeah, worship and singing. We'll talk a lot about community. Uh, We'll talk about worshiping in spirit um, and in truth. But just really quickly, why do we sing? Uh, Why are we singing? I went to um, rock concerts, Christian rock concerts when I was younger. And um, I really enjoyed them. And so I went to numerous ones. My kids are 14 and 17, and two years ago, they said, hey, let's go to a, um, a Switchfoot concert in Portland. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been to those before. Let's go. Let's have some fun. So sure enough, we went to uh, the concert, and, and when we went to the concert, um, I will tell you that it was all-consuming. I could not hear anybody who spoke because the sound was turned up too loud. And uh, as a result of the sound being turned up too loud, um, I went to do something that was very wise and said, I'm going to go get some toilet paper and put it in my ears. Since I loved my girls, I said, do you want me to get some toilet paper for your ears as well? And they looked at me and said, Dad, you're getting old. (laughs) I'm like, no, I'm trying to offer my daughters wisdom in a sense that this music is too loud and it's not like we can't hear it if we put toilet paper in our ears. And then I made some other comments that I think I got confronted on. I I said, you know, that guy's hair is kind of outdated. And uh, they responded to me and says, you know, just because their hair is not from the 80s does not mean it's outdated, Dad. We're in in 2015, you know, during during those times. But um, you go there, and I will tell you that I don't think you can stand inside of a concert without it consuming almost every single aspect. The aspects that worship consumes according to the Bible is emotions, will, and mind. And if you look through Psalms, when they are worshiping God, singing to God, praising God, and giving Him glory, they do it in the process of their emotions, will, and mind being consumed to God. It's done with a purpose. Let's look at this passage in Psalms 95 a passage of David singing a song of worship. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud with a rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is great God, the great King above all gods. What do we see? We see joy. We see shout. We see emotions that are involved in the process of worshiping. But is the emotion coming from the song or is emotion coming from the source. Will, we see, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He is our God, and we are his people of his pasture, the flock under his care. What do we see? We see the will now dominated to God, bowing down. 
we're kneeling, but is it because of the song or is it because of the source? The mind is involved. Today, if your heart hears his voice, do not harden your hearts, but respond with your mind to the song or respond to the source. See, when we move with song, it grabs the emotions, but the heart of worship is the source. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Here we have another passage that I've already read that talks about the will. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's not explaining about a song in this passage whatsoever, but what is there? There is a will. The will is presenting yourself, your bodies, to God. And then continue the verse, and do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world have your heart. Do not let the world have your emotions. When you worship, you are giving your emotions then to God rather than the world. And it also comes to your mind, transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. The argument that we're making is that one word worship carries a central piece of you that is huge. So we have to ask the question, what do we worship? Number six, let's ask ourselves, if we don't want to come right to the concept of what we're worshiping, ask the question, what consumes your mind and what does it do for you? The answer to the question of what you worship is what consumes your mind, and then also ask the question, what does it do for you? This is a question that we should be asking um, all day, and because we can easily take good things and make them ultimate things. And they are ultimate things when they are controlled, when your mind is completely obsessed with them. In fact, that's what makes them ultimate things, is the obsession um, of your mind. So looking at my life, I ask the question in the morning, what consumes my mind? What does it do for me? I could be sitting at my desk, and as I'm sitting at my desk, I can study a sermon. And as I'm studying a sermon, I have to be real with myself. What consumes my mind, and what does it do for me? And just a confession, maybe sometimes it's not always God. Maybe sometimes it could be the approval of others. Maybe it's sometimes I just want to get this done. Maybe it's I just want to get this right. Do you see how powerful that question could be in almost any and every situation and circumstance? Our minds are consistently consumed by something. And asking yourself every day, what consumes my mind? And then ask the question, what is it going to do for you? So what if the entire week my mind is consumed about making an impression on others? Somebody comes in the foyer afterwards and says, you know, you studied that sermon all week. Um, it was probably about the worst sermon you've ever preached. Well, what would my response be? It would really be what has consumed my mind in the process of studying my sermon. Was it to give glory to God? Or was it to make sure that somebody came to me and said, you know, I really felt touched by your message today. You see the difference of how we worship and being able to see what we worship? Is if your mind is consumed by something, your actions will automatically follow. We need to ask our questions. What has your heart surrendered to, and what does it do for you? As I mentioned before, you can take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, 
And we see that in the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments is love Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Love God, and then don't put any graven images. Don't have any idols before him. The first two commandments are about worship. Is God the one that has my heart? And if God has my heart, are the other eight commandments going to be okay? Will the other eight commandments kind of come together if God has my heart? Because I think those commandments are even written in that way because I have to ask the question, what is my ultimate? And if my ultimate is God, my heart is owned by him, will other things come about? Or have I made something else my ultimate? I want to go back to family again. If my family is my ultimate and my heart is completely and entirely surrendered to it specifically, what does it do for you if something starts to fall apart? What happens when I try to control it even more if it is my ultimate? When I'm assessed by my family, what takes place? No health takes place in my family. There almost has to be an obsession and ascribing to God even for the health of my family. We can ask ourselves a question consistently all day. What, who owns your will? Where has it taken you? Every sin that you have ever committed comes from the heart of worship. It comes from the action of who you worship. So if you've ever lied, um, the statement of lying and saying, you know, I prize this more important than God. Therefore, I need to lie because it's my ultimate to make sure that this is my priority. Cheating, same thing. Jealousy, same thing. Hate, same thing. They're all driven by the one that owns your heart. Because of the one who owns your heart, then owns your will. Charles Spurgeon is number seven is our last point. Rejoicing in temporal comforts is dangerous. Rejoicing in self is foolish. Rejoicing in sin is fatal. But rejoicing in God is heavenly. We were created for something big. We were created for something extraordinary. That something big and that something extraordinary is beyond our mind. And when we start talking about the distances of the stars, um, you will see that God is completely and entirely beyond our mind. But then we open up the Bible, and when we open up the Bible, what do we hear? The God that is extraordinary loves you specifically. And then he says, I want you to make you, to make me your all. Nothing else. I want you to make me your all. I want you, the word, to worship me. So we can ask the question, is he our ultimate? Is he the one that controls emotions, mind, and will? And if not, what are the rest of the things doing to me? And if he is, what would it do for me? Father, we just thank you so much, God, for um, giving us love. We can marvel at your creation and marvel at the size and, and think of your majesty and think of your holiness and stand in awe. But there's something else, God, that you have given us, and that is your love, that when we see the size of you and we see what you have to offer us, God, it is designed to move us. It is designed to break us. It is designed to control us. I just pray, God, that um, whenever we worship and as we worship, God, that the focus will be 
um, on that amazing love and on the amazing size, God, that you have and the amazing love that you have given us. God, help us to never forget, and I just pray that you will empower it to drive our life and nothing else. In Christ's name, amen.